Hello, welcome to the third episode of my short lecture series on family violence and crime. I'm Dr. Hasan Bükar. In this episode, we talk about the criminal justice response to intimate partner abuse and relationship violence. Before starting to discuss various aspects of the topic, I want you to put yourselves into the shoes of a police officer. You are responding to a domestic disturbance call at night. You arrive and knock the door. What's in your mind at that moment? Maybe you are thinking if there is someone armed in the house, you may be motivated to save a life. But you may also be thinking this be a family matter and not happy about your involvement in this matter. Maybe you are questioning your capacity to address a family crisis. Or you are thinking about another call you responded during your last shift where there were three young children left alone at home when you needed to arrest both spouses. These are all possibilities facing a police officer responding to a domestic call. However, the criminal justice system's response only starts with the police officer's actions, but it continues through the other criminal justice and related procedures like court orders, protection of the victims, rehabilitation programs, prosecution, and etc. As you can easily see, the criminal justice response to family violence cases brings various complexities that we will further explore in this episode. Throughout this chapter, we will use the term partner assault as it distinguished this form of family violence from other types of family violence. From a legal standpoint, the term partner assault is not really reflecting the actual extent of the problem or the nature of it. An assault does not involve any physical injury to the victim in general. It's actually a battery that's being discussed in this case. However, to be consistent with other professionals and writers in the field of family violence, partner assault is generally used instead of partner battery, and it's defined as the act of intentionally inflicting physical injury on a spouse or other person who is cohabiting with the abuser. If partner assault were like any other crime, the police response would be fairly simple. Just investigate, arrest, charge, and cooperate with the district attorney in the prosecution of the perpetrator. Unfortunately, partner assault involves certain factors that make it a special problem. These factors are explored in detail in this episode. You might also refer back to the previous two chapters where we discussed about the uniqueness of family violence compared to other types of violence that occur in the society. And we know partner assault is one of the most common forms of violence in the United States. For instance, the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey indicated that approximately 18.3% of all the female respondents and 8.2% of male respondents have experienced contact sexual violence perpetrated by their intimate partner sometime in their life. This very survey found that 30.6% of all female respondents and 31% of male respondents had been subject to physical violence by their intimate partner sometime during their lives. 
for about 21.0% of female and 15% of male respondents, the physical violence had been severe. And various studies explore the characteristics of those who assault their spouses and previously suggested a typology of three types of males who engage in partner assault. Please pay attention. As I mentioned in the previous episodes, we usually refer to male perpetrators as the majority of cases involve a male perpetrator and a female uh, victim in partner abuse cases. And in the previous chapter, we looked into the general characteristics of the perpetrators, and you might find this typology uh, as very similar to those previously discussed characteristics of the perpetrators. And accordingly, we can talk about three common types of perpetrators in partner abuse cases. The first one is a generalized aggressor. This type of abuser has long-term chronic mental health problems. He may be invested in holding on to his aggression and, it, and uses or abuses alcohol as a method of keeping his childhood abuse covered. This type of aggressors usually has rigid, rigid sexual beliefs, and that usually entails a kind of masculine mentality. And usually they are unable to emphasize, uh, empathize with uh, their victims, and they show little or no remorse for their actions. The second type is usually referred as a family-only type. This aggressor lacks communication skills and usually unable to express his anger in an appropriate manner. Therefore, he, he turns to assaultive behavior as a means of expressing his frustration, and they also abuse alcohol in general. But as the name implies, those people might not display aggressive behavior in the society when they're outside of their families or when they're communicating with other people within the family um, except their partners. And the third type is emotionally volatile type uh, in which the abuser or abuser's reaction is clouded by anger. He has rigid sexual expectations and little self-control. When combined with the previously discussed characteristics, those types of perpetrators might be seen in most of the cases, but you might also find an exceptional case in which none of those types can be applied. And when we look at the responses or the factors affecting those responses, we need to start with the law enforcement's response. But as I mentioned at the beginning, the response or the criminal justice response only starts with police, but the, it continues with the involvement of other agencies and professionals, as we will discuss in a minute. We know that the law enforcement's acknowledgement and response to partner assault has been slow in coming historically. And even today, some police officers would rather not get involved in a family matter because this situation shouldn't be surprising. Um, this situation should not be surprising because the battering of women in particular has existed for thousands of years, as we mentioned in the previous chapter. Between 1975 and 1980, 44 states have uh, passed some sort of legislation on domestic violence. And despite the existence of laws regarding partner abuse, studies have indicated that the police have been reluctant to enforce violations of this type of criminal conduct. 
Uh, while there is no single factor resulting this hesitation or reluctance to enforce partner assault laws, people, especially the scholars, um, understood this phenomenon, this hesitation, uh, through various uh, perspectives. And usually uh, those perspectives identified factors including cold screening uh, or beliefs regarding financial hardship on the family in the event of an arrest, the family argument theory, the classification of partner assault as a misdemeanor, the victim's preference not to arrest, and perceived danger to police in domestic violence situations. And recently, we have been talking a lot about police-involved shootings and police use of unnecessary or excessive force. I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that most of those cases are about the domestic disturbance call. So police are very much likely to rely on force uh, when they are called uh, for a domestic abuse uh, case. Um, and, you know, this entailed uh, a kind of special approach to domestic violence calls among law enforcement professionals. Um, historically, we know that the police officers are reluctant to arrest the abuser, uh, mostly because of a mistaken belief that an arrest would pose a financial hardship on the family. And um, arrest, uh, from a technical standpoint, means taking a person into custody in the manner prescribed by law. And it doesn't necessarily require uh, handcuffing a person or putting this person into a closed place. But once a person feels that he or she is not free to go, this person should be considered under arrest. And many officers in a domestic violence case would make an arrest only if the injury to the victim is severe or the case is supposed to be end up in a felony uh, prosecution. And in this chapter, you can read from your textbook more about what a felony or a misdemeanor is, but uh, based on your common knowledge, you might uh, understand that the felony crimes are more severe and serious than misdemeanor crimes. And um, another fact, creating an hesitation among police officers um, for, for arresting the perpetrator in partner abuse cases is the victim's preference not to file charges. Uh, also, um, uh, not to file charges uh, if an arrest is conducted by a police officer. So knowing or, or, or uh, presuming that a victim wouldn't char file charges um, make police officers less likely to conduct an arrest if they don't have to. And several studies have already indicated that victims of partner assault often do not want police to make an arrest. Uh, and this results in the officers uh, merely admonishing the offender and then leaving the scene of the, of the crime. So based on that historical uh, perspective or, or practice among law enforcement professionals, uh, many states in the recent years have passed mandatory arrest statutes. And mandatory arrest is one of the most common yet uh, controversial uh, responses of the criminal justice system to family violence or domestic violence cases. And uh, these policies, these mandatory arrest policies, require police officers to conduct an arrest uh, 
when they respond to a domestic call. And, you know, there, there are variations across the states and, and departments about that, but it's about arresting the suspect. And these laws mandate uh, police officers to make an arrest for domestic violence with misdemeanors, even if not committed in their presence. And usually for other types of crimes, misdemeanors are not considered to be uh, a part of warrantless arrest uh, policies. And the passage of these laws and their effectiveness are subject to debate within the field of criminal justice. But what are the alternatives to arrest? Um, or what does mandatory arrest uh, entail? And um, to answer that question, to understand the impact of what mandatory arrest policies can do or how they can affect um, the future presence of violence within a family or or, or uh, across the partners. Um, a famous study was conducted in 1984 in Minneapolis. And this is usually referred as the Minneapolis experiment or Minneapolis mandatory arrest experiment. As I mentioned before, you know, this is a great groundbreaking study, yet it's been controversial as the results have been widely implemented and the impact uh, of the study um, which is creating mandatory arrest policies have been widely questioned by the scientific community as well as the international uh, level practitioners, not only in the United States. And uh, this study was the first controlled evaluation of the effect of arrest on individuals who commit assaultive types of crimes against their spouses. In the course, in, in the course folder, in chapter three folder, you will find two reports and they are recent reports about the impact of uh, mandatory arrest policies. I strongly urge you to take a look at those additional documents to understand the, the controversies about the mandatory arrest policies and the results of Minneapolis experiment. And in this experiment, police officers were required to, when they were responding to a domestic violence, uh, misdemeanor call, um, they were not allowed to use their judgment and discretion, but they were supposed to randomly implement one of the following options. First, arrest with at least one night's incarceration. Second, send the offender away from the scene of the disturbance or arrest him if he, if he, reviews, if he refuses to leave. Third, give the couple some form of advice, including mediation. And as I said, uh, the study was randomly assigning those choices to police officers. So they were expecting to measure uh, the impact of those, those options. And the study indicated uh, some impact, some positive impact of mandatory arrest, um, but overall, um, Sherman and his colleagues who conducted the study made three recommendations. The first and probably the least controversial of those alternatives or recommendations was to change existing laws to allow the police to make warrantless arrests for misdemeanor partner assaults not committed in their presence. So as I said before, this is not the typical authority given to a police officer. 
conducting a warrantless arrest for a misdemeanor case if it didn't happen in their presence. But uh, the study indicated or the study recommended that could be an option to increase the effectiveness of, of arrest uh, or to prevent future uh, violent behavior of the perpetrators. The second recommendation um, implied that mandatory arrest was the preferred option in most cases of domestic violence. And finally, uh, the authors recommended that additional experiments should be conducted in other cities to validate the results of the Minneapolis study. The study and the results have been controversial because regardless of that, that last recommendation, um, before waiting the results of um, the future studies, most police departments and the jurisdictions wanted to implement this mandatory arrest policies. And this experiment acted as an agent for change within the criminal justice system. Advocates of mandatory arrest and other sanctions were able to find support in various state legislators for long overdue reform of criminal justice statutes dealing with domestic violence. And the greatest contribution of the study may be that it generated an incredible amount of debate within academia and the law enforcement professionals as to how to respond to domestic violence. And as you will see in those additional readings on the course page, the controversy has not uh, been resolved yet. And we still have been discussing whether police officers should be mandated to arrest the perpetrators or the aggressors when they are responding to a domestic violence um, situation. And after that study, which was conducted in 1984 in Minneapolis, there were five additional studies, follow-up replications of the study. A replication study means um, designing the study in the same way um, but to conduct it on another group of people at another location at another time. Uh, since the methodology, research questions, um, and the tools used in the experiment is the same, the results, if they are reliable, should be uh, very similar, if not exactly the same. Uh, but at the end of those five studies, and uh, along with the original study, which was conducted in Minneapolis, um, the results are still not really conclusive. In 2001, for instance, the National Institute of Justice and the CDC conducted a scientific evaluation of the results of those studies, uh, 16 total. And um, this, this review study uh, indicated that there's an evidence of a consistent and direct while it's still modest, deterrent effect of arrest on aggression by males against their female partners. You know, the, the results of those studies overall indicated that mandatory arrest can have an effect to deter those perpetrators um, from committing a similar crime against their partners in the future, but this effect was not really strong. It was indeed modest. And this effect existed for the first several days after the incident, regardless of the length of incarceration, and lasted up to one year after the incident. But we know the partnerships are longer than a year in most of the cases. And the research, this review study, also pointed out that a minority of perpetrators continued their violence regardless of the intervention that occurred. 
And today what we need is to have more studies in this area of domestic violence because the society has been changing, the dynamics of the law enforcement have been changing. And recently, you know, the, the law enforcement have faced enormous critic about their role in, in dealing with crisis in the society and relying on excessive force, especially deadly force, uh, for not being able to de-escalate certain situations, including domestic violence cases. So uh, in the future, uh, we will need to see results conducted, uh, results of the studies conducted um, at various locations around the globe, not only in the United States, around the globe. And, um, you know, for different types of partners, for different types of partner abuse cases, <clears throat> and for different types of uh, law enforcement uh, practices. And what are the alternatives to arrest? This is the situation for mandatory arrest cases, but that's not the only choice of law enforcement officials. Uh, they can conduct a mediation, for instance, which is a private informal dispute resolution process in which a neutral third party person, the mediator, helps disputing parties reach an agreement. And prior to the Minneapolis study, um, Lerman, one of the authors, point out that pointed out that most law enforcement agencies used mediation in an attempt to deal with partner abuse. And law enforcement agencies across the United States trained their officers in dispute resolution techniques, specifically in the area of domestic violence. And officers attempted to use crisis intervention techniques to solve the problem in the home rather than take any formal action. And Although mediation is an excellent dispute resolution technique for business and labor, it was uh, doomed to failure in domestic violence situation. um, situations because mediation assumes that each party is equal or nearly equal in power, status, or need. But what we know and we examined in the previous chapters is, is power inequality or status inequality or financial inequality exists in most of the situations where we see violence, in most of the families where we see violence. And informal mediation doesn't work as a method of uh, decreasing or ending partner assault. Uh, assault. That's, that's what we know. And uh, on the other hand, a variation of uh, the mediation concept is now employed in some jurisdictions that does establish accountability and attempts to place the parties in a more equal bargaining position. And um, some scholars recommended a series of steps that all police officers can and should take on arrival at the scene of the crime, whether or not the suspect is arrested. And uh, those best practices or, or, or recommended series of steps uh, starts with medical care if someone is need, is in need of medical attention. It also involves helping for transportation of the victim, especially the female victims and children, and requiring the suspect to leave the residence if possible, and if the if the suspect is is cooperating, and ensuring the victim's safety if she leaves the residence. Uh, for instance, taking the victim to a shelter to a safe place. Uh, not to cause any further 
uh, conflict between the perpetrator and, and the victim and asking uh, the victim on her legal options or advising uh, her or him uh, about the community resources and following up with the case um, and the next day or the following days is also another important role that needs to be taken by the law enforcement officers. And, uh, you know, Sherman, one of the leading authors or the scholars in this field, um, calls those practices as smart policing. And smart policing entails also authorizing police to make warrantless arrests in domestic violence situations, which is, you know, not necessarily mandatory arrest, but leaving the decision to the police officer who is observing the case and making that judgment based on certain circumstances. And uh, smart policing entail a couple other similar practices as well. Um, we also have restraining orders as another uh, reaction or as another response uh, given by the government, by the criminal justice system. And the restraining orders or protective orders are court orders that prohibit the offender from having any contact with the victim. Um, they are civil versus criminal and require a judge to rule that sufficient evidence supports the issues of such an order. And, uh, you know, there are, again, the research indicates both advantages and disadvantages for restraining orders. Um, it's advantages on the one hand because it's an alternative to arrest. Um, and, you know, arrest has some consequences, but it usually is not a long-term solution. While the restraining orders can protect victim for a longer time, uh, arrest might not be able to keep the perpetrator or the suspect away from the victim for a long enough time to create an efficient protection. And, um, you know, those restraining orders or protective orders um, can be effective in the sense that they still will allow the suspect to maintain a financial, a good financial well-being while staying away from home or from the from the victims and and the, and the children. Um, the stress will not be building up because they will not be losing their jobs. They will not be losing their financial capacity to take care of the rest of the family. So, as I mentioned, restraining orders is a controversial policy. It both has advantages and disadvantages. And the, the studies measuring the effectiveness of restraining orders um, so far have come up with uh, with conflicting results. So we cannot say they are they are not they are necessarily good or bad, but if implemented under certain circumstances, they can provide uh, better results than mandatory arrest. And after those restraining orders, it's also important to understand how the courts are reacting to partner abuse cases. Uh, we know, for instance, uh, for sure, that most of those partner abuse cases are considered crime uh, if they carry certain uh, characteristics like the violation of the criminal laws. And um, they need to be just like any other crimes, they need to be prosecuted. Uh, what, we, what we know for sure is very few partner assault cases are prosecuted. 
and I don't want to go into the details, um, but I want you to think about that. Why do you think um, only a few of those cases would be prosecuted? And uh, you might want to think about the elements of, of a crime. You might think about what we need for an effective prosecution, like evidence, like eyewitnesses, like uh, expert uh, expert witnesses, so on and so forth. And in most of the times, uh, we usually do not have good witnesses or the witnesses of the cases uh, are usually either the victim or the perpetrator themselves. So there are various reasons for uh, the lack of effective prosecution of partner assault cases. Um, but we know certain types of partner abuse cases are more likely to be prosecuted than the others. For instance, if there's a serious injury, if there is a victim uh, who is ready to testify against the perpetrator, or if there are other eyewitnesses, or um, if the officer was witnessing the abuse case or the violent behavior uh, when he was at the scene. And, uh, you know, those family violence cases, partner abuse cases, requires a certain level of specification and expertise in identifying alternative measures to sanctioning the perpetrator. This is why some jurisdictions wanted to establish special family violence courts. And in the course chapter, again, you will find a short video about an example of that. And one of those, uh, one of those courts were actually established for the first time in our state, in the state of Florida, in Dade County. And again, you know, the results about those domestic violence case courts indicated some level of efficiency uh, as they gain expertise and they specialize on family violence cases and they are much more capable of identifying. In conclusion, uh, we can say the criminal justice system's response to partner abuse uh, has been evolving over the past three decades or so. Uh, for instance, the law enforcement's responsibilities to victims of partner assault uh, are continually evolving. Um, and as I mentioned before, in the light of recent um, social concerns, uh, about the law enforcement and the law enforcement officers' role in the society, I expect that we will see some changes in how police officers are supposed to or, or are required to respond to domestic violence cases. But, uh, you know, as we have just seen in this episode, this, the criminal justice response is, on, is not only about uh, the police response. It also involves the judicial system. And again, I, I am expecting that in the future, we will see more specialized courts in dealing with family violence cases. And I, I would say we should see uh, more specialization in dealing with family violence. So in the upcoming chapters, we will take a look at uh, some of those issues in more detail. And thank you and looking forward to having you again in the next episodes.